Hey everyone, we're back again. It was a great break, but I'm excited to bring another friend to the mix. Wes, thanks so much for joining me once again on our adventure. Of course. We had such a great time talking to Lou about what he does as a security analyst. I thought maybe we could mix it up a little. And I invited my friend Seth to come and talk to us about being an infrastructure engineer. Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for having me. Now, would you mind, I guess, carrying on a little bit of our tradition here and introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what it is that you do? Sure. Uh, so my name is Seth, and I am an infrastructure engineer at Sysdig, which is a uh, Kubernetes and container security company. Uh, and basically, my responsibility is to help build our Kubernetes clusters and handle all of the cloud infrastructure engineering so that the rest of the broader software engineering teams can build our product and ship it to customers. So I'm going to ask you to break it down for us. What would your day look like if someone here, I guess, wanted to be an infrastructure engineer? What would they be doing? Uh, one of the things I love about being an infrastructure engineer is uh, pretty much, uh, I can do pretty much anything uh, in the day-to-day. -day. Uh, so uh, being that I'm an upstream Kubernetes contributor, a not small amount of my time during the day is spent on managing our Kubernetes clusters and keeping things running there. Um, I can do things like work on our build and release pipeline to assist our developers in actually getting their code into production. Um, sometimes everything has to stop and drop for alerts or production outages or things like that. And a lot of things like that can lead to some old school uh, Linux and sysadmin troubleshooting, you know, digging through log files and, and getting packet captures for the network and things like that. So it's kind of all over the place. Down in the trenches. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's it's a lot of fun because, you know, under the hood, all this container stuff is just Linux. Um, so it all comes back around full circle at the end of the day. From your description there, it does sound like you're doing things all over the spectrum, not only in, in different jobs, but also just but from development to actual operations. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I kind of joke and like to call myself an ops dev engineer uh, because I got my start doing uh, desk-side support, IT, turning things off and on again for a living. Um, and when I relocated to the Bay Area a few years ago, that was when I really discovered, um, actually, AWS was my first cloud I discovered. And I was uh, came to the realization that all of the racking and stacking and server stuff I had done physically, I could just learn to write code and make that happen. Um, and that was something that I latched onto and decided that was going to be my career. And I think that's one of the places I want to focus, because when I first heard your title, that's what I thought of. I thought, hey, maybe he works like at a data center and he's actually like building out these servers. but the title, the jobs themselves seem to have shifted as we go to more as a service platform. You know, were you were you ready for that? Was it something that you expected to happen or was it a harsh transition going from physical servers to the cloud? It was a harsh transition in terms of uh, my skill level. Um, I was not ready uh, for any of this. I grew up in upstate New York and I found out very quickly that when I moved to the Bay, uh, I was a big fish in a small pond back in, in New York, and out here, uh, a, a junior engineer like me was was a dime a dozen. I remember my first interview, I was, I was eaten alive. They were not rude, they weren't difficult, it was just I didn't have the answers to the questions that they had. They were expecting high standards and experienced people. Yes, yes, definitely. And that was when I decided that I needed to start studying a lot of these things and and 
there was no way I was going to pick all of this up uh, in my day job. Like I said, I was I was you know desk side support. I was I was leading IT for a design lab, which was a really cool job, and I got to do some cool you know data center and server stuff. But at the end of the day, I was helping people with laptops and and new cell phones and things like that. And there's no way I was going to learn site reliability engineering or DevOps or or infrastructure, cloud infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, uh, doing that job day to day. You know, I kind of want to zero in here because when we first started talking about you coming on the podcast, and I'm going to embarrass you here maybe for a moment and quote you because you told me, you know, I don't think anyone's going to want to hear a, how a cis white dude dropped out of college and still managed to get this great job. But I think what you just described your day-to-day before as is something that so many people can relate their current jobs being. So how do you go from where you were to where you are now? What steps could people take to be able to maybe try to replicate that success? I was not the computer guy in high school or college. Uh, As someone, uh, quote-unquote, millennial, I was good with computers the way that anyone my age is. I could reset the clock on the VCR, but I don't think my parents were able to. Things like that. Um, But if my laptop stopped working, you know, my hard drive was fried uh, freshman year in college. And all I knew is that I pressed the power button on my computer and it didn't turn on. And that was the extent of my knowledge. Uh, So I didn't start programming when I was six. Um, I didn't have my first computer till 11 or 12. You know, I really didn't have a background in these things um, and kind of ended up getting a call center job in uh, upstate New York, which is in that location, a decent job. and was the only person that owned a Mac at the time because uh, I'm a musician and I wanted to record. I thought I was going to be a rock star. Um, and that was how I was kind of immersed in all the computer stuff, being the only person at this job that knew how this platform worked. And I was lucky enough to uh, parlay that into a more desk side support job at a new employer supporting all of the ex- executives. They wanted the shiny MacBooks, the new iPhones, everything like that. And I knew how all of those worked. Um, And so I got incredibly lucky starting at that job in the corporate headquarters and day one met the CEO. Um, I wouldn't have known the word imposter syndrome back then, but looking back on it, that's definitely what I felt at the time. Um, I didn't know how to do any of the Windows things that the other IT uh, team members knew how to do. uh, And I was constantly asking for help there. Um, but I knew how to do a few things very well, and I knew how to be, you know, a nice person and uh, de-escalate situations when they arose. Um, and I took to just wandering around the office and seeing if I could help anybody, being proactive, even if it was just I made a note to come back and ask another engineer how to solve a problem. Um, and so just being a friendly face and willing to help uh, led that company to move me to San Francisco Uh, to lead the IT in their design lab. And after uh, that long stretch of being there for a few years was when I really started diving into the cloud engineering stuff. And uh, as I said before, realized that wasn't going to be something I picked up in my day job. Uh, So I began uh, studying after work. I'd work my eight, 10 hour day um, and come home, eat, and just sit with a cat on my lap in front of my laptop and just absorb anything I could, Linux and cloud engineering related, um, with the hopes of convincing someone to hire me with no experience on my resume for any of these things into some sort of junior role. I want to jump in for a moment on one thing that you said, and you said, you know, I was very lucky to meet the CEO. 
And I think that some people might want to stop there and be like, oh, well, you know, I, I can't replicate that. That was luck. But I think it's really important that you followed up with the next thing and talking about going in and just asking people if you could help and walking by and meeting people. Because I think that we ignore how much networking is really a part of our career growth, regardless of where we are. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely agree there. Uh, I was a member of a 10-person team, and everybody knew the CEO, um, but I was the only person that, for better or for worse, treated him as a human. There was a lot of awe and fear around this gentleman, and uh, maybe it was uh, a bad attitude at the time, but I was just kind of of the opinion that he's just another human, and people said he was mean, people said he was difficult, and... Uh, I was able to separate myself, uh, my you know, my self worth from my job and his attitude, and just kind of see him as a person that needed computer help. And I don't know if he liked it. I don't know if he disliked it. But based on where I am now, it worked for me. He honestly engaged with him. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I didn't always have the answers he wanted, um, but there was no point in me uh, lying and saying I'd figure out how to make something happen when what he wanted was physically impossible. Wes, you might be able to maybe speak to this a bit better, but I'm going to just put it out there. Because another thing I heard you say was, you know, the imposter syndrome hit because I didn't know how to do you know, X in Windows. And I think that's something that maybe some of the tech grouping really does is we hold on to Linux like a religion and we don't learn how to do things in Windows and Mac. But in the real world, if you want to continue to grow your tech skills, you really have to, in my opinion, learn a little bit of everything so that you can adapt to your platform? Yeah, Elle, it can be pretty tempting to stay with what you know or what everyone else is talking about, but I think it's always handy to have a few more tools in your tool belt. I mean, sure, you might not know all of them equally, but just having enough to get started, not having to learn everything from scratch when you encounter it, and you probably will encounter it, that's going to be useful. It's been slightly different for me, but I remember uh, Lou mentioned that if he was able to do one thing sooner in his career, it would be uh, to learn more Windows. And I've been incredibly lucky where I've ended up that all this container stuff, while uh, some of it is Windows compatible, you can run Kubernetes on Windows, um, I have been able to isolate myself into that Linux world and keep doing that. Were I still in a more desk side or IT uh, management position, I would have definitely had to brush up on a lot of the Windows stuff that I still to this day would struggle with. Um, the Windows subsystem for Linux has been something that has pulled me back into Windows, uh, but it's still not my daily driver. Right, I definitely want to jump down that rabbit hole with you, but I've got one more question um, before we leave your past, and that's we all hit a point, or at least I think we all hit a point, where we think maybe this tech thing isn't for me. Have you encountered that point in your career yet? Uh, that is a reoccurring theme in my career. Um, I grew up and went to college and I wanted to open a guitar repair shop. Tech was a complete accident for me. And I still think that I don't, I don't know what the end date is, but I still think I may have an end date in tech, at least uh, as a career choice. I enjoy my upstream open source contributions and would like to continue to give back in that area. But if I could get out of the day-to-day -day engineering and sitting at a computer and hacking in a terminal as much as I really enjoy it, uh, I think that would be something I would aim for in the next 
10 to 15 years. In those moments where you're just like, oh, maybe maybe I should jump quicker, right? You know, the, those self-doubt imposter syndrome moments. How do you kind of pull yourself out of that and just keep trying for that win? I ask my friends. I talk to the engineers that I work with. And um, this is one thing the Kubernetes community has been incredible uh, in helping me with is realizing that I don't have to be the strong silent type and handle these things on my own. I can go to the hundreds of friends that I've met through this community or any of the engineers uh, that I work with day to day and have a conversation about things that are bothering me. Um, and I'm lucky that something like that does help me feel better. I know a lot of people that may not work for them, but I feel incredibly lucky that I can go talk to other people, pick their brain, or even if they just look at me and say, you're being ridiculous, <laughs> you know, you're really smart, you know, you know how to do all of these things. You can figure it out. Definitely. You know, maybe it comes from a uh, an inflated sense of self-worth or a little bit of conceit, but I don't think there's anything wrong within reason um, in taking a step back and looking at everything you've done and kind of patting yourself on the back and saying, wow, I've done, I've done X, Y, and Z. I've done these things. You know, that was, I still go back to the presentation I gave uh, at KubeCon in Barcelona in front of a few hundred people and went, wow, that was something that I accomplished. Um, I was there for a reason. And, and that definitely can uh, lift your spirits a little bit in a, in a rough day. Speaking of previous things that you've done, I did find an old blog post from you um, actually about how you broke your Kubernetes cluster. And I actually found it really refreshing because I think a lot of people aren't willing to admit their faults. Did you find that to actually be helpful or did you find that more people were negative about you admitting what you hadn't known? I got a few comments on that article that were a little negative um, in pointing out some of the obvious things that I may have missed. But uh, that uh, article, that uh, time span was roughly two days in which uh, I had a broken Kubernetes cluster. And by the end of the second day, I was just fried and I was missing the most obvious of, of signals in how to fix it. Uh, but the majority of the people were very supportive and chimed in with their, their own stories. And that post has actually ended up on a, a GitHub repo, which is called uh, Kubernetes Failure Stories. And there are <laughs> 30 or 40, probably more at this time, uh, stories like mine of how people have broken everything from the nodes they were running on to networking to uh, even deleting a whole cluster like Spotify has done a few times. I remember they spoke about that at KubeCon. And so it, it really made me realize that um, as much as I think I'm the only person that has broken things like this, we've all done it. And it's helped me realize that we shouldn't keep these things uh, secret. You know, you can call it the whole DevOps culture, blameless postmortems and transparency and things like that. Um, but I think it's good uh, from a technical standpoint to show off everything that we've done and how we fixed it and how we can learn from that. But it's also good uh, from a from a, a spirits and a, and a humor standpoint to to share these things, and I can look at it and go, "Wow, Wes, I can't believe you missed that." And you look back on it now, six months later, and you go, "Yeah, it was really obvious." But you know, at the time, I was six cups of coffee deep, and I hadn't slept overnight. So I was watching the the money burn. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely, and I think it's it's nice to look back on those things, uh, and I don't think everybody can do this, but I know I can, and and laugh about it. 
um, because it just seems so ridiculous in hindsight. But at the moment, you're pulling your hair out and and you think your job's on the line. I like that, though. I mean, it seems, I guess to return to a theme, it, it seems honest, right? I mean, we all have these these things that we're supporting and running, and you want them to look as shiny and good and reliable as you can. But, I mean, we, we all have problems, we all have issues, and it's a process that we have to go through oftentimes together to figure it out. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree there. And I think, you know, being that all these tools that we're using, especially in the, the cloud-native ecosystem, uh, to drop a buzzword, uh, where I spend most of my time, you know, with Kubernetes and things like that, all of the code is open source. And so I think we can be a lot more open about our successes and failures and uh, and not only have better open source code, but better open source community uh, through that. So let's pack up all of these lessons and kind of fast forward to present day. So you mentioned that you're working at Sysdig, but you're actually one of the new kids there, right? I am. I am the second newest infrastructure engineer. We had a new one start this week, so I am the quasi-new kid on the block. And on top of that, you mentioned that you're trying to tackle WSL, which I myself have been trying to do. And honestly, most of my problems are coming just trying to learn Windows itself. So how are you dealing with, you know, the, the pressure of being the new kid, trying to learn a new platform while still trying to stay up to date in the Kubernetes world? It just it seems almost overwhelming. It is definitely overwhelming. Um, I won't sugarcoat it and say that I can handle all of it. There are days where uh, I take a look around, either literally or figuratively, and realize, how am I going to learn all of this stuff? Amen. I keep coming back to something that uh, a prior manager of mine told me. It was actually my first real DevOps job uh, outside of IT uh, when I finally made that leap. And he hired me with no resume experience. I had been studying on Linux Academy, actually, uh, for an AWS certification, uh, but I didn't have it yet, but I wanted it. Um, and he hired me, and I asked, uh, why? Why did you hire me? Um, I really probably shouldn't have been second-guessing it and questioning him and just accepted it, but uh, <laughs> that's not in my nature. And so I said, why did you hire me? And he said uh, something along the lines of, uh, you're a cool dude, you can learn the rest, and we'll teach you. Um, and that's something that I keep coming back to, to think that um, as long as I'm, you know, generally pleasant to be around and, and willing to help and, and willing to learn, uh, I can find people that will teach me. Or uh, in the case of, you know, fast moving startups or things like that, um, you sometimes have to teach yourself. But as long as you're willing to show that initiative and, and start somewhere, that's the biggest thing. Don't get overwhelmed by all of the things to learn, learn one thing. Just start somewhere. You have to form uh, a crack in the armor at some point and and break your way in. And so that's how I spend a not insignificant part of my days here is just reading uh, either documentation for things we've written or open source tools that we use or asking what may be considered some really dumb questions. Uh, but I'm better uh, for having the answers at the end of the day. Man, Seth, that was so amazingly put and just makes me want to kind of keep trying at this WSL thing. So maybe we'll have to have you on again and we can recount our stories on how this went. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining Wes and I on this little adventure. We can have our own little WSL users group right here on the show. I'm definitely looking forward to it. But until then, you can find links to everything we've talked about over at extras.show.